The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit MidtownColumbia.com partner. Good to see you guys. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at our downtown church. Glad to be with you this morning. A special shout out to Two Notch folks. Glad y'all are here. Appreciate y'all. Hey, I'm, I'm excited about y'all's new spot. So I know... Uh, you're just temporarily waiting, but I think it's going to be a good location. I think it's going to be a blessing for the ministry that God's called y'all to. So I'm, I'm grateful for that and also glad we get to hang out together this morning. So a uh, couple of updates I'll give as you are uh, maybe turning in your Bible. We'll be in Acts chapter 17. So if you want to get a Bible, there ought to be one on the end of a row. Somebody would pass that on to you. Acts chapter 17. We are... Uh, doing a uh, series over the summer. We're just trying to grow as missionaries. So we're looking to be developed as those who are followers of Jesus, who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We want to become more effective as missionaries. And so uh, we have built to this point. So if you've missed the last two weeks, you may go back and listen to those because we're sort of building up to today. And uh, that'll be in Acts chapter 17. We'll look at Paul as he interacts with people in the city of Athens. I wanted to say thank you uh, for some of you. Uh, Last week I encouraged an idea that you might put some margin around your uh, Sunday gathering times, just being here 15 minutes early and staying 15 minutes late as a possible way to create some opportunity for God to... uh, have some conversations come up and for some chances for you to connect with folks. And I know some of you made effort to do that today. And so I appreciate that. I think that could be uh, a good pattern that we might grow into. And I'd commend that to you again. So thanks for those of you who, who gave that a shot today. And then uh, another update, I'll give you a personal update. So the first week of the series, I, I confessed to you guys that I've had a pretty bad attitude about my new neighborhood and my neighbors and uh, just owned that and said that I had not set a good example. And so I've uh, been trying to figure out something that we could do. We actually now, as an encouraging thing, Courtney and I put a date on the calendar and we've got some neighbor families that are coming over and we're going to do a backyard party. We're going to grill out and watch a movie in the backyard with some uh, families that have kids that are our kids' age. So if nothing else, the series has been good for me. Uh, at least I had to repent as I was preaching through stuff. It's like, I can't just say this and then me not do anything. And so that's, uh, that's what's going on with the Gibson house. So I'm excited about that and grateful for, uh, for that. And if anything comes of it, I'll be sure to weave it into a sermon at some point in the future. <laughs> so uh, what we've done so far is looked at two other churches that got started, the Church of Antioch, and then we just took some lessons we could learn from them. And then last week we looked at Philippi and Paul as he engaged in the city of Philippi. And what we'll do today is look at Paul as he interacts with people in the city of Athens. Today is a little different than the other ones because we actually get to see the words that Paul uses. So we get an example of the language and words that he uses as he actually shares the gospel, as he verbally explains who Jesus is and commends Christ to other people. And so those will be some of the lessons that we'll take. And what we'll do, we'll keep it in the same style as we've done this series. We'll just work right straight through the story and explain it. And I'll highlight a few things as we go. And then once we're done working through the story, we'll pull some lessons that we think could apply to us as a church, uh, us as life groups, and then us as individuals who are uh, called to the same mission type work as Paul, just different settings and different scenarios. And so uh, let's just work through the story. It's Acts chapter 17, and we'll pick it up in verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, waiting for them, he's, he's left his friends, Timothy and Silas, and they're going to catch up with him in Athens. Now, Athens at the time was sort of the intellectual capital of the world. Think, think Harvard. Think Oxford or Cambridge. This is where all the top philosophers came from, guys like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the sharpest folks 
are in Athens. So he's waiting for his friends in Athens, and he's kind of walking through the city. It says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. There's actually a saying uh, that people used to say about Athens. It says it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. So they were a polytheistic culture. They had all these different deities, and they ascribed these different realms to these deities. And they had them all housed in these different temples all around. This is going to be a key point as we move forward. So I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. That when it says the city was full of idols, it does in fact mean images made, fashioned through stone and wood and metal. And it's actual like statue type things. But the biblical category for idolatry is a little bit bigger than that. That it's anything that you ascribe ultimate value to would qualify biblically as idolatry. And so I say that to say, for example, you might make money the ultimate pursuit of your life, that it's what you build your life and identity and worth off of is the pursuit of accumulating wealth and resources and material possessions. Well, that for you is in fact an idol. Now, you may not ascribe deity to money and you might not worship, say, uh, Artemis, who was the god of wealth and prosperity that the people in Athens would have worshipped, but it's the same idea in that you've taken something and made it ultimate. It's become at that point a God that you worship. And that'll matter as we move forward in the story. So it says that Paul's walking through the city, that his spirit was provoked. That's the language that's used here. It means that he's motivated by love and concern and compassion, that his heart's broken as he sees this way of life and he sees the brokenness that it's going to lead into. I just want to point that out because I know some of you, some of your resistance when it comes to sharing your faith is that you feel like anytime you use words to talk about Jesus with someone else, you're turning a person into a project. That's often some feedback that I get is I just don't want to turn people into projects. Because I want you to see that's not what the Bible calls us to. That's not what Paul's doing. He's treating people like people and what's motivated him into action is that he's provoked. His spirit is, is broken He has compassion and love and concern for these people that he loves, whom God loves. And so that's what motivates everything that Paul says and does from this point forward. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So it says that he's reasoning in the marketplace. That's like a cultural center. We don't really have anything like it. It's not Columbiana Mall. That's not what we're talking about when it says marketplace. This is more a, a central hub for everything. This was a financial district. This was where, you know, they didn't have Twitter and they didn't have news or newspapers. So if you even just wanted to get updates on what was happening, you had to go to the marketplace to hear a herald who would announce the daily bulletin. Here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Here's what's coming. Here are the new laws. This was where they discussed any sort of uh, legislature. It's where they talked about the, the latest philosophy. They would debate. It was this intellectual hub. And so Paul takes the good news of Jesus right there into that cultural center, and he starts to engage and interact and present arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That's an insult. The word babbler actually means a seed picker. It's this picture of of a chicken that just picks at seeds and doesn't actually digest them. 
So what they've done is they've, they've called him a second-class intellectual. They're insulting his intelligence. They're saying, you don't really know what you're talking about. You're just sort of dabbling and grabbing at different things. This is, this is lower-level junior varsity intellect that you've brought. And I'm just encouraged by that because it's not the first time that people have acted as though they were intellectually superior to Christians. So what does this babbler wish to say? But others said... He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That, they heard that as a foreign divinity. That's the summary of Paul's message, Jesus and his resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I love, so Luke is the guy that recorded this, and I love that he puts that little jab in there. It's like, oh, you're going to call my friend Paul a babbler? Well, I'll just get an insult on you in the Bible. All you care about is just running your mouth all the time. So they're intrigued by what Paul is saying in the marketplace. And so they invite him into a place called the Areopagus. It was the council, sort of like the town council um, it was the most accomplished uh, center. There was this council that would meet and they would pass judgments and they would debate different philosophies. If you wanted to have a new religion uh, declared okay in their city, you had to pass your inspection, your, uh, your investigation. Your, uh, you had to get it approved by this council. And so historians say that these philosophers, they were always on the lookout for new gods they could add to their pantheon. And so this is a sort of an interview this is impromptu. Paul is called up in front of the sharpest, brightest minds in the city, and then they say, give us a reason why we should accept Jesus as you've uh, presented him. Can you imagine, like, if you're at work, and your boss says, hey, we're going to have a, a company-wide staff meeting, and in the meeting, he just looks at you, and he's like, hey, would you come on up and just give a defense for why you're a Christian and why you think Jesus is the one true God? Come on up. Come on up. How do you think Paul's going to do? in this interview, in front of all these people who already think they're intellectually superior to him. So here's what he says, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, and what we're going to get is an outline. These were not short speeches. They were known to be really long. So we're probably just getting a sort of bullet point outline of what he said. But here's the outline of his talk. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious or spiritual, because he's seen all these idols everywhere. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. This was a sort of just-in-case God, right? So they had all these different gods who were in charge of all these different areas, and they all had their houses and their places and their temples and their statues, and then they have one that's like, in case we missed one, to the unknown God. This was in case a God shows up one day and he's all mad. He's like, you guys didn't put me anywhere. I have nowhere I'm about to smite you. They could say, no, 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 this was you. We just didn't know your name. What's your name? We'll get it written on there. That's how, that's how nervous they were to make sure they had all their bases covered. So Paul takes that and he just runs with it. He says, I, I saw this altar to the unknown God. And he's, he goes on to say, I happen to know that guy and I'd love to tell you about him. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I just want to point out something here that Paul starts with their questions. He starts with where they are. 
And that means sometimes he does things differently. And so, for example, even just in this chapter, in chapter 17, verse 2, it says Paul went to the synagogue and he reasoned with people from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So he goes to the synagogue for people who were, had a background of, of Judaism who already believed in the Old Testament scriptures, and he points from the Bible how Jesus is the fulfillment and the promised Messiah. These folks in Athens, they have no respect for the Old Testament, so he doesn't start there. So there's different methods based on where people are. And actually it makes me think of uh, when, we were starting, when we were starting our two-notch church. So we were trying to get engaged in the area and starting to meet folks, and we wanted to have a presence on Benedict, and some of these folks are here that I'm about to talk about. We, uh, so Ant wanted to start a Bible study or some way to get engaged, and we realized people on campus at Benedict actually have a high view of the Bible. They just, a lot of them don't understand it, but they, 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 they hold it highly. They believe it's God's word. And so the strategy became that we just sent some guys around campus yelling out, hey, tonight we got uh, pizza and we got Jesus. Both are free. So come on if you want to hang out. And they just walk around campus. We've got uh, people here who are Christians right now because they were hungry that night. So they showed up, right? And Aunt, uh, Aunt's so funny talking about it. He said at first what he would do is just to get to know people, he would try to tell a story about himself. And people would start getting a little frustrated, like, bro, you're holding the word of God. Why are you talking about yourself? Teach me what it says. What are you doing? So he finally figured out. He just needed to say, hey, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, glad you're here. My name's Aunt. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. <laughs> And that was the strategy because people were like, this is God's word. I'd like to understand it. Start there, please. I don't care who you are. <laughs> but that's not what Paul does here because he's not talking to people who have a high view of God's word. They, they don't, they're not familiar with the Old Testament. So they don't, they don't know. And so he starts with where their questions are, what, what they're asking, where they're at. And then from there, he goes to Jesus. So let's keep going with the, with the speech here or the outline of the speech. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he starts to sort of undermine and point out the logical problems with their approach to, to God or the gods. He says, does it make sense that the God who created everything could be contained in a temple? Or that we would need to put food out for, for him? That we would need to, to serve him? Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He's actually doing two things here. First, he's saying that the real God is not some tribal deity. He's not the God of the sea. He's not the God of the Ephesians. That he's the, the creator of the, whole, of the whole earth. That he's the creator of all mankind. But then second, he's actually saying that the greatest pursuit in life is to find this God. See, the Greeks and Romans, their view of God was that they were a means to an end. That you worshipped this God to get what that God could give to you. And Paul says, no, 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 we come to the one true God because he's an end, he's a reward unto himself. So what their approach was, was for example, if you wanted prosperity and money, then you worshipped the goddess Artemis. And she could deliver to you the thing that you really wanted, prosperity and money. If you wanted wisdom and politics, political victory, you worshipped Athena. She was the goddess of wisdom and politics. 
Aphrodite was the goddess of sexuality and beauty and fertility. Nike was the goddess of victory, worshipped by soldiers and basketball players. Bacchus was the god of partying and alcohol. And all these gods, they were a means to an end. So you, you would sacrifice and worship this god to get the thing you really wanted, right? And Paul says, no, 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 no. The real God, the one true God, is so great, so transcendent, he's the reward himself. You don't come to him to get something. You come to him to get him. That's his argument. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. And even though he's that transcendent and that huge and that spectacular, he says still in verse 27, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Y'all see the quote marks there on that little phrase, in him we live and move and have our being? That's a quote, but it's not from Scripture. Paul's actually quoting from a song written about Zeus in 600 B.C. So he's familiar with the things that they knew with their sort of pop culture and their prophets and their poets, and he quotes to them something that they already would have been familiar with, and he does it again in the next line. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That's a quote from a poem written by a Stoic poet. Paul's well-versed enough in their culture that he can quote some of their own prophets and their own literature, and he uses that to sort of build a bridge with them. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, if God is the creator, you're foolish to think you can reduce him to something you can hold in your hands. You don't need a temple for God. God built the earth for you. The times of ignorance God overlooked, which just means he stayed uninvolved, leaving you to your error. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says that Jesus has come, that he's God descended from heaven, that Jesus has died and risen, and that everything that he says is true and right and is proven true and right because he's risen from the dead. That's what in verse 31, that word assurance means proof. That's how Jesus has proven that he is the one true God who will judge. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, Dionysus, Dionysius, third time, got it, the Areopagite, and a woman named a woman named Damaris, and others with them. He gets three responses. Some people make fun of him, dismiss it as ridiculous. Some people say, That's interesting. I'm willing to talk a little bit more. I've got some questions. Could I have another conversation with you? And some people say, I'm in. That's beautiful. That's good news, and I want it. Uh, I don't know if you think like this, but this is what happens every Sunday. When I preach, we open the Bible, whoever's preaching and teaching, there's always three responses that can happen. Some people who are here will think, this is ridiculous. It's 2018, and you're really, this is what you're saying? Some people will say, huh, I've never heard it put like that. Could I, is there something I could read? I got some follow-up questions. Can I hang out? Can I get in a life group just to watch how people work this out into their lives? And some people will say, I'm in. This is amazing. Yes, I'm in. I'd love to follow Jesus with my life. And this is the response. These are the three responses that we should expect as missionaries who share the gospel with others. Those three are our categories. That some people are going to think it's ridiculous. That some people will respond by saying, I'm interested. Let's talk more. And that some people will say, 
I'm in. Let's do it. So that's what we got with, with Athens. Paul contextualizes the gospel for this city, puts it in language and words that they can understand. He meets people where they're at. He uses their own quotes, their own ways of thinking, and he uses all of that to present the good news of Jesus. So what should we take? What are our lessons? What should we take and apply for us as a church, for us as individuals, and for us as life groups? i give you four things today, four lessons that I think we should take and apply. Number one, like Paul, we should observe the idols to be good missionaries, to be faithful and effective. Like Paul, we can learn from his example. We should observe the idols. In verse 16, it says that he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 23, it says he passed along and observed the objects of their worship. Observed the objects of their worship. So what would you say are the idols here? Like in the city of Columbia, what are our objects of worship? I was thinking about it and I actually realized, I think if Paul just came here, like straight from 2,000 years ago, just came here, or if someone who lived in the city of Athens 2,000 years ago just showed up in Columbia, I actually think they'd feel right at home. Like if they show up and they head down Assembly Street and they see this massive, giant cathedral structure we call Williams Bryce, they would say, what is this place of worship and what is this religion? And we, would say, and we would say, no, 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 it's not a house of worship. That's silliness. That's silliness. We've progressed so much further than that. We're enlightened now. We have the internet. No. No, no, it's not a house of worship. And we'd go into the game, and they would see all these people who were chanting the same chants and wearing the same colors and touching each other as they sing songs together. <laughs> They'd see the sense of community that this, that this has brought about, that we're strangers high-fiving because we scored. And they would say... This is a competition. This is, you guys are, this is Nike, the goddess of victory. You're worshiping Nike. And we would say, no, we're not. That's silly. And they'd look at the other team's jerseys and they'd say, what's that checkmark swoosh on their jersey? <laughs> and we would say, well, it's Nike, but it's different. I'm telling you, I can't tell you why. I just know that it is. And they would leave and then they would go to Kaminsky's in the Vista and they'd walk inside and they'd see a statue. This is in the, the restaurant. They'd see a statue of Bacchus. The god, the god, um, the god of uh, wine, partying, alcohol, and they would say, "I'm familiar. I know what we're doing. I get it. This is we're, we're, we've gathered to worship Bacchus, the god of the party." They would leave and they'd head to the grocery store and they'd look at our magazines and they would see all this ten tricks to be more beautiful, seven ways to have a better sex life, and they would say, "This is Aphrodite worship." This is, you guys are doing, I get it, I know, I understand, this is Aphrodite. They would sign online and look at social media and all the political yelling and fighting and anger and vitriol that we have. And they would say, this is Athena, worship the, the god of, of wisdom and politics. This is where you do that. You do your Athena worship online and you, you do your Bacchus thing at Five Points or in Kaminsky's and... It's the same. We just don't put deities ascribed to it, but it's the same stuff that we're chasing after. I don't think we've changed at all. I just think we have, like, medicine now. <laughs> it's the same stuff. We believe the same things are going to deliver the good life to us. We just don't attach a, a, a particular God to each thing. But I'm not sure that our belief systems are all that different. So we also need to know, not just city, because that's something that I think about whenever I'm preaching, 
is that I want to get to, I want to insert the good news of Jesus in those things that seem like cultural, big, sweeping, citywide things. But for you, you've got neighbors, coworkers, friends, family who don't know Jesus. And it's just as important for us to know where our friends are at and what their idols are and what their belief systems are so that we can be good observers and so that we can learn to meet them where they're at. And so you need to know, what about your friends, your neighbors? What are their beliefs? Here's how you can really drill down on it. You've got to think about some questions. Questions like, what are they most afraid of? Whose opinion really matters to them? What do they long for most passionately? What do they turn to for comfort? What do they complain about the most? What gets them angry? What makes them joyful and, and happy? For people who would say they believe in God, what makes them angry at God? Because usually people get angry at God when God doesn't give them their idol. You can know if someone has, say, a control idol, if their greatest nightmare is uncertainty. You can know if someone has an approval idol, if rejection horrifies them. You know if someone has a comfort idol, if their greatest nightmare is stress or demands or commitment or obligation, if they're always trying to get out from under any sort of restraint, any sort of commitment, okay, this is a comfort issue. For someone who has a power idol, their greatest nightmare is humiliation or embarrassment. We got to know. And I'll tell you the best place to start is to examine your own heart because you and I are just as much idolaters as anybody else in our city. And the more that you know yourself, the more you'll know how to have language to describe how other people operate. So those are good questions for you to ask for yourself. We got to observe. What are the idols? What are the beliefs? Where are people coming from? That's number one. Here's number two. I want to spend a little more time on it. We got to undermine the idols like Paul did. We want to observe them. We want to undermine them. We want to poke some holes in the ideology. Here's how Paul undermines. We already read this, but just to recap it. Verse 24, he says, The real God is not served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. See, in these temples, you would have had servants, and they would serve the images, the golden images. They would clean them. They would feed them. They, were, they would wash them. And so Paul's subversive comment here is to say, hey, if you've got to make your God a sandwich, he's not that powerful of a God, is he? Hey, if you have to wash him when he's dirty, how's he going to wash you when you're dirty? So Paul uses these kind of insights to undermine, and even quotes from their own culture. So I'd love to do that now and give you some quotes from people in our culture who have started to see that our systems and idolatries don't tend to work. So I'll read one. It's from a guy named David Foster Wallace. He's a best-selling novelist, brilliant guy. He's agnostic. He committed suicide in 2008. And before he did, he gave a, a, what's now a very famous commencement speech. And so you may have heard parts of this because it is, it is pretty popular. But it's also very insightful. Here's what he says. He says, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. 
Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. It's a chipper little quote. If you're looking for something on a t-shirt, I might look elsewhere. I don't think this one's going to sell. I don't think it's going to sell. I can just describe for you how most Americans go through life. And I've done this before. We just consistently think that our contentment and our joy and our happiness is just right around the corner. It's just right at this next thing. And if we can just get there, then we'll be fine. Then we'll have arrived. Then everything will fall into place. And I remember it in my life starting when I was in middle school. I looked at the high school guys who could drive, and I thought, dude, when I get my driver's license, I'm going to have freedom. I'm going to have girls because I can drive. And that's got to be what the ladies want. And when I get to high school and I get my driver's license, that's it. That's when I'll finally be content. Got to high school, got my driver's license. It was great, but I realized, no, that's not quite what I needed. I think maybe I got to get out of high school. I think that's my problem is I'm still living in my mom and dad's house. I'm in high school, too much restriction. I need to just get to college. And if I can get to college, that's that's where the good life starts. And so I graduate, I go to college. It's like, this is pretty great, but it's not quite it. I love it, but I need, maybe it's because I don't have any money and what I need is a job. And if I could just graduate from college, then I can get a job and I'll be, I'll be happy. That's when I'll finally feel free and content. And so what I got to do is just get out of college and get a job. And you graduate, you get a job and you realize nine to five is so long and it doesn't matter that you have some money because you have no time to spend it. And you're so tired And you think, I made a huge mistake. I should have stayed in college. (laughs) A double major would have been fine. Okay, I think now I got a job. Apparently what's missing is I I probably need to get married. I need to pursue someone. I need to get married. I think if I could just get married, then that would solve all of my problems and we won't have any issues. And so you meet someone, you pursue that person, you get married, you're so happy, the honeymoon's over, and you start to realize this might not be enough. And after a while, you realize you haven't fixed anything. You haven't fixed anything. All of my problems are still there. And so you start to think, well, you know what I've heard really brings a sense of calm and peace to the house is if we could have some children. I think what's missing is the love and unconditional acceptance of a child from whom I could just bathe in their warmth. I think... All of our issues will just simmer down if we could have a baby. So you have a baby thinking that's the next thing, that's the next step, that's where we got to get. You have this kid and you say, oh, we made a huge mistake. (laughs) We should have got a pet. (laughs) We New goal, get this kid out of the house. 18 years, that's what we're doing. If we could just wait 18 years, then she's gone and that's when we'll finally be okay. Empty nesters, that's going to be our lane. So we're holding strong for 18 years. You get the kid out of the house, and all of a sudden it's the weirdest thing. You actually kind of miss them. And you think, oh my gosh, I did like her. I, huh, huh. Okay, well, all right, the kid's out. Still not quite. I think it's probably because we need to retire. If I could just retire, then I'll have all the freedom in the world. No work. No responsibilities if I could just retire. You guys know that depression and suicide rates skyrocket when people retire. 
because at that point there are no other markers to aspire to, to think my contentment and joy is just right on the other side of that. And what I'm telling you is your gods are not working. You need better ones. You need a better one. And we as missionaries in the city of Columbia have got to learn to undermine people's belief systems to help them see it's not working. And if you won't believe me, and if you won't believe Paul, and if you won't believe David Foster Wallace, then surely you will believe Zac Efron. (laughs) In a 2014 interview, he was explaining why in his mid-20s, he had to check into an alcohol rehab facility. Here's what he said. I had done back-to-back, I had done films back-to-back-to-back, and I was burnt out. There was something lacking, some sort of hole that I couldn't really fill up. I was just so deep into my work, it was really the only thing I had. I mean, you're in your 20s, single, going through life in Hollywood, you know? No, no, Zac Efron, I don't. (laughs) I really don't, bro. I really don't. I love this quote from Jim Carrey. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. What I'm trying to do is show you your own prophets and your own poets and your own celebrities. And I want you to see they have the things you think you need to be content and they're trying to tell you it is not working. Listen, if money and fame and popularity and sex are what we need for life, then why is Drake so sad? (laughs) That's my final argument. If I was holding a mic, now is when I drop it. So listen, what do your friends, what do your friends and neighbors believe? What do they believe? What are their idols? And now how can we helpfully undermine them? And once again, this starts with us. The most effective way you can help undermine someone's idols is for you to confess and repent of your own. So now you have language and terminology and insight that you can explain how it wasn't working for you. Okay? So that's number two. We can learn from Paul. We gotta undermine the idols. And then point number three, we gotta show how Jesus is better. Show how Jesus is better. I mean that in two ways. I mean, firstly, that Jesus is a transcendent treasure unto himself. And then, secondly, I mean that whatever people are pursuing in life, Jesus actually offers a better version of it. So here's what Paul does. It's in the middle of, I'll pick it up in the middle of verse 30. He says, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Paul's invitation. He says, I want you to repent, stop chasing false gods, turn to the true God. This is always the call. This is always what we call people to, starting with us, that we need to repent and stop chasing false gods and turn to the true one. He says that Jesus will judge the world in righteousness, and he's also the God who died on the cross to provide us that righteousness that we lack because of our idolatry. Paul ends his talk making this argument for the resurrection of Jesus. He says that God's given proof that all that Jesus says is true and right because Jesus has risen from the dead. Bodily, literally, rose from the dead. He's physically declared, he's he's risen from the dead, he's declared himself to be the son of God, 
And this is Paul's way of saying, you realize if Jesus rose from the dead, then nothing else matters. Like it doesn't matter what other objections or questions you have about Christianity. If Jesus rose from the dead, we drop him and we say, okay, he's God. Okay. It doesn't matter if you think there are parts of Christianity that don't fit with your deepest wishes and longings. It doesn't matter if all your questions are answered. Like if you never get an answer to the question of why does God allow evil and suffering in the world, you don't need it to worship Jesus because he's risen from the dead. So it's not about do I have all of my objections covered, all of my answers given to my satisfaction. At some point it's did he rise from the dead? And if everything he ever said sounded awful and horrible, if he rose from the dead, we would say, I don't have a choice. i got to worship him. Now it just so happens everything he says is beautiful and wonderful and life-giving. But the point remains, the point remains that Jesus is a transcendent treasure unto himself, that if he's risen from the dead, then everything else doesn't actually matter. It doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter what your objections are. He rose from the dead. So we worship him. We drop everything else. Now, while that's true for all of us, that we all need his forgiveness and his credited righteousness, it's also true that Jesus is specifically good news for each one of us. And what I mean is, if control is what you're after, then you'll never have enough of it and the pursuit of it will ruin your life. But you are invited to rest in the arms of the one who works all things according to his good purposes. That if comfort has been your God, there's a God in heaven for whom you were created and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. If approval is what you've built your life on, you have the Lord of the universe who says in Christ that he delights in you, that he enjoys you, that he likes you, that he accepts you, that he welcomes you. Who cares what people think? I have, the, I have the love and the favor of the God of the universe. If performance has dictated your life, Jesus has performed in your place. He's the only God who won't let you down, but who laid down his life for you. And not just that, but he rose from the dead to prove that every single word he ever said was true and was right. I'll give you an example. I just heard this recently of a story of how all this ends up working itself out into a regular person's life. I uh, heard from an older Christian man, and he was saying that he had gone out on a date with his wife. They'd been married for years. And they were on this date at a restaurant eating dinner. And at some point, his wife just looks at him and says, Hey, so have you noticed? It just seems like things have been really good between us lately. Like for a while now, things have just been good. And he's She said, do you have any insight as to why that would be? And he said he thought about it for a second, and he looked at her and he smiled, and he said, yeah, uh, it's because I finally realized that you can't satisfy me. And she just got this big smile on her face, and she yelled out, oh my gosh, that's it, you can't satisfy me either. And he said everybody in the restaurant kind of turned and looked at him like, oh no, they're getting a divorce. Like I'm watching a divorce happen. And they had this celebration moment as they realized that the more that they had put their hopes and dreams for contentment in this other person, the more they were fighting and at constant conflict with each other. But when they realized, you are a sinner, you cannot be my savior, they turned from trying to find their hope in the other person and put their hope and trust in God. And all of a sudden, their marriage found freedom and joy and life because they both got to be sinners who needed grace. That's how it works, and that's what we want for people. We want people to be freed up from whatever their idolatry is so that they can find hope and life in Jesus. Here's point number four. We'll end with this. Like Paul, we've got to be provoked. 
We've got to be provoked. It says that Paul was provoked when he walked around the city, when he saw what was happening, when he saw the brokenness. His heart was broken. I want, I want you to be provoked by your neighborhood and the brokenness that you see, by the false beliefs that you know are going to end poorly for people. I want you to be provoked. Not, not angry, not indignant, but also not indifferent. Provoked. Compassion moved into action. Provoked. I want us to be provoked by our city, by the ways people are trying to make life work apart from God. This is one of the places where I, I get a lot of feedback where people say, I just don't know, I don't know what to say. Like if I'm having a conversation with someone, I don't know what to say. I'm not good at talking about this. I don't know how to communicate to them in a way that's effective. I heard an example a few years ago that just crushed me and made me never say that phrase again. Uh, the example is, I don't know sign language. And in fact, uh, when I see people who are, who are fluent and, and can, can really communicate well having a conversation in sign language, it's overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's so demonstrative and expressive and there's so many things happening and it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't handle this. There's, I, this is overwhelming to me. You know, the real reason why I don't know sign language is not because it's difficult and it overwhelms me. The real reason is because there's no one who I love enough who's deaf. And if one of my kids was deaf and the only chance I had to communicate with them effectively was to learn sign language, I would learn it. And it wouldn't matter how difficult, it wouldn't matter how many hours it took, it wouldn't matter how long, how many nights, how many weekends, I'm doing it, because I'm going to communicate with my kid. And what I'm saying to you is that if we have the words of life and we love our neighbors, then we will learn how to communicate with them. You'll learn. There's books. There's articles. You can come talk to us. I would love to help any way that I can. Half the time what I do when I'm talking to someone is say, that's a great question. I don't know. Let me see if I can find something that'd be helpful to you. But it's actually not about how difficult it is to communicate. It's about are we provoked? Are we moved? Do we care? Do we love? And for whatever ways I am able to speak for our church as a group, uh, we are provoked. As a church, we're provoked. There are 100,000 people within five miles of this spot right now who do not know Jesus, and we're provoked by that. We, in Columbia, South Carolina, we have a high, as high a rate of homelessness as New York City does. We're provoked by that. There are hundreds of children who right now are apart from their families for one reason or another and do not have a family. We're provoked. There are thousands of unwanted babies who will be aborted and killed this year in our city, and we are provoked. And so we do Serve the City events consistently throughout the year because we're provoked. We want to move. We want to go. We want to help. We want to bless. There are people all around us who need to be reconciled to God, and there's darkness and brokenness. And we do not believe that we're going to be able to fix it all, but we know the man who can and one day will. And so until he comes back, with all the power that we've got that God will give us, we are going to die trying to push back darkness and be about the ministry of reconciliation, seeing men and women reconciled to God through Christ. And I cannot, I cannot make you care. This has been something that I've had to tell myself so often as a pastor. I want to so badly be able to make you care. And I'm inadequate. I can make you be motivated about until you get to the parking lot. 
That's how much, that's how much strength and power I've got. I can get you motivated until you get in the car and then it's over. Sometimes I lay in bed at night beating myself up because I don't know how to make us care. I don't even know how to make myself care. How much less am I able to make other people care? So we need God's spirit to help us be provoked as we watch and observe, as we realize the end results of all the idolatry and the brokenness that it causes so that we are provoked and moved into action on behalf of our city. And so I'd love for just uh, to take some time to pray for that and ask God to do that, that all of us would grow in our, in our spirit of compassion and our zeal and our eagerness to move and be about the things that he's called us to. And so let's pray, and then we'll have a time of response. We'll sing, and we'll take communion, and, and we'll give to be uh, supportive of the mission. Love to pray for us. Jesus, we want to have your heart. We want to care the way that you care. And God, I mean, part of why we're here is because we do care. I mean, we wouldn't be here if we didn't care somewhat. And so I don't want to be dismissive of what you've done and where we're at. But God, we want to care more. Lord, we want to be provoked and moved so that everything that we say and do is fueled by compassion and love and concern and a desire for you to get glory. And so we just ask that you would minister to us, the Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to love and deeply care about the people that you've put around us and to be burdened for the places and spaces of brokenness in our city that we might go and be your hands and feet. And so just ask that this time of response would be beneficial and meaningful, God, that you would work and use it, that you would call us to repentance, and that you would soften our hearts, and that we would take slow and small, gradual, progressive steps towards being the church that you want for us to be. And we ask this for your glory and for our good. Amen.